I'm Derek Thompson, the host of The Ringer podcast, Plain English. Look, a lot of news these days is kind of nonsense. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. I'm just trying to ask the questions that matter from people who know more than I do about everything I'm curious about. And that's most things. Recession fears, AI hyperbole, psychology, productivity, China, war, streaming, movies, sports, you name it. The world without jargon. The news without bias. Plain English with Derek Thompson. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On today's episode of One Shining Podcast, we have friend of the program, Eamon Brennan, joining the show, and we are talking ACC-SEC Challenge, the first impressions from this great event. I had a lot of fun watching these games. We'll talk about the big four games that happened, of course. We'll also talk about my North Carolina Tar Heels dropping 100 points on the number one team uh, on Kim Palm's defensive metrics, so we love to see that. Also, Duke lost in Bud Walton Arena. Shout out to all the Woo Pig Suey fans out there. I know they had a fun night. We got a jam-packed show. Going to be a lot of fun with Eamon Brennan. In case you missed it, Kyle is still on vacation. Shout out to producer Kyle. We're happy that he's having a nice time back in New York City. We got Devin helping us out today. Shout out to her. We appreciate all the producer coverage here at the Ringer. Now let's get into the show. But first, Woody Durham. He takes the timeout. Technical foul. Technical foul. Technical foul. Welcome back to One Shining Podcast. I'm your host, Tate Frazier, and joining us now, he's a friend of the program. You've heard him before, and we finally have college basketball to talk about. Eamon Brennan. Eamon, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot. Just uh, just enjoying the glut of games. Last week in particular was like, it's almost too much basketball. Um, <laughs> after having none going to like all day, every day, um, it's it's just a fantastic feeling, and it's it's great to have plenty to chat with you, man. Yeah, I feel gluttonous uh, a little bit as I uh, come off Thanksgiving and, you know, we're all, you know, we got the turkey in us and we're all like falling asleep on our couches, but we're overwhelmed with basketball. And luckily for us, it's been good basketball. In fact, some may say great basketball and uh, I'm fired up because I, I lived through the decade plus of the ACC Big Ten Challenge. Obviously, we had some great moments during, you know, that tenure between those two conferences. And there was some skepticism, some conversations. What does the ACC SEC Challenge look like? Obviously, the Big 12. SEC challenge ends, but so far so good. Even seven to seven, um, you could call that a, a great showdown to say the least. We had some great games. I want to start with the first game that kind of made our jaws drop, and that was the Kentucky Miami game. Let's start there because we go to Lexington, Kentucky. Everyone's fired up about this Miami team, talking about can Miami, you know, run it back? Can they go back to the Final Four? Um, we'll talk about the Kim Palm tweet a little bit later, but the first half was very competitive. Uh, Miami, Kentucky, you know, it's what you 
expect. But the second half, it just completely opens up. And now we're all talking about Coach Cal and we're talking about Coach Cal like it's 2012, 2015, 2011, whatever year you want to pick. It feels like the old days and he's got a suit on the, on the sidelines. Let's start there. How are we feeling about Coach Cal and sort of this um, PR redemption tour? Because he was doing a victory lap after that big win. I mean, honestly, he kind of deserves it. I think the, you know, it would have been very easy for a guy who has accomplished as much as he's accomplished and put as many players in the NBA as he's put in the NBA um, to respond to the last couple seasons of Kentucky fans loudly complaining about how the team played, like how it actually, not not just wins and losses, but um, sort of tactically how it played by saying like, you know, who are you guys to question me? I'm John Calipari and look at all the money I've made for all these kids that go pro and and c- sort of doubling or tripling down on on the stuff that he was doing. Um, instead, he has completely, from top to bottom, refashioned the way his team plays. You know, the last few seasons that were classic Kentucky, the same stuff that he was running, you know, 15, 20 years ago, probably for the New Jersey Nets, like uh, a lot of floppy stuff, a lot of guys running off ball screens, you know, you had guys like Kellen Grady, uh, who was a transfer from Davidson, brought in to, to shoot on the perimeter, just sort of standing in the corner while the ball dies out top, like really relying on offensive rebounding and Oscar Shibwe and a really ugly style of basketball and also not a super efficient style of basketball. Tons of mid-range shots, tons of um, the kinds of shots that, that basketball analytics and sort of the last decade um, post-Golden State really have kind of like taken out of the game. And you look at that this year. Um, Kentucky doesn't take mid-range shots at all. They take a ton of threes, which they never used to do. They take a ton of shots at the rim. They don't turn the ball over. They play really fast, faster than they ever have. Um, And so he has assembled a roster full of really young, really talented freshmen, which is, again, a throwback. He's not trying to do the one-year transfer portal makeovers anymore. He's back to his roots of of recruiting like six or seven elite freshmen. Um, And he's, he's done that, but he's also put them in a system that actually works for them. Like Reed Shepard the other night, obviously he had a great game. Everybody's talking about him. But the part of the reason why Reed Shepard looks so good is because he's playing in space. He's playing one-on-one against defenders. He's coming off quick little actions at the top of the key to get it to get an open three. He's not running off the baseline like Rip Hamilton in 1999. So I actually think Calipari deserves a lot of credit because they look night and day from what they looked like last year on a strategic level. And they, you know, he, you know, they brought in the talent to make that system work. And what you see so far is probably the best offensive team in the country um, through seven, eight games. And this is why previews and, and sort of the prognostication of the season is always funny because when you talked about Kentucky going into the season, right, the two names that you heard are DJ Wagner and Justin Edwards. And in fact, Justin Edwards was on most boards to be the number one pick. But as you watch Kentucky right now, you can make the argument that the guy coming off the bench, Reed Shepard, is their best player. And in this game, he plays 30 minutes against Miami. DJ Wagner, who's kind of the de facto point guard, plays 10 minutes. So um, for whatever reason, Calipari has stuck with this starting five. But now now we've got questions about is it better to just re- bring your best player Reed Shepard off the bench we get nice cutaways to the crowd to his parents we get the nostalgia right of this Kentucky team we even get Rick Pitino tweets about how much he loves the Shepard family right it does feel like Reed Shepard is somehow becoming the face of this basketball team despite being probably the fourth or fifth guy that you would originally talk about when you talked about Kentucky going to the season so that's that's the fascinating part right now about this group is they do have this one wrinkle that they have to figure out with 
with Dillingham and Shepard because both of those guys, when they come in, they make positive plays, they make a positive impact, and they obviously are very important to this team. But if you stray away from Justin Edwards, DJ Wagner, you know, kind of being the, the face of the program, does that one hurt their confidence? Does that change the dynamic of the team? If they're coming off the bench, I think that's the only conversation that I think right now you can have about Kentucky that's a constructive criticism of what's going to happen as we move forward. It's like, can these guys who are supposed to be the guys understand and accept the fact that on this team this year, a guy like Reed Shepard, who may not look the part, who may not have the hype coming in, is really the guy. I think that's that's the real, um, you know, the, the only knock I have right now in this Kentucky team is like, when are we going to have that uncomfortable conversation? Or is Calipari enough of a wizard to, I mean, he, th- this guy had a platoon system, right, with five stars coming off the bench. So he's been able to massage the situation before. Are we worried about that at all? Like that there's going to be some sort of come to a head moment where DJ Wagner says, hey, wait a second. I'm DJ Wagner and I'm supposed to be a top 10 pick. What's happening here? I'm playing 10 minutes. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think if you go back to the platoon system, I wonder if there were some lessons learned, you know, Mm -hmm. in that Wisconsin game, like go back and watch the tape and he puts the Harrison twins in over and over again. And they're, you know, particularly down the stretch of the Wisconsin final four game that, that cost Kentucky its undefeated season. You know, man, you got Devin Booker on the bench. You know, like I, I might right. put that guy in the game. Like I know you, you have made certain promises to the Harrison twins, and and they've been around, and you know, their the family was a big part of that Kentucky um, landscape, so to speak. But like in retrospect, it's like play your best guys, mm-hmm. and um, I th- I wonder if if we saw a little bit of that in the Miami game because Reed Shepard was so good, and DJ Wagner has struggled. Um, you know, DJ Wagner played relatively well the week prior i think he was the sec freshman of the week um, he was yeah so he showed he showed some signs and and i think relieved some of the kentucky fans who were like oh this is this is heading toward a weird situation here um but it's not just reed shepherd it's also rob dillingham like there's two guards there that have played lights out that you know dillingham was frequently the best player on the floor against kansas and um th- those guys are both coming off the bench and when they play dillingham looks like the fastest guy in the country with the ball in his hands He's extremely decisive. He's a shooter. Like, it's hard not to play those two guys plenty of minutes. And, you know, that does lead to the uncomfortable conversation with DJ Wagner. Maybe, as as I think, I think it was Jay Williams on one of the broadcasts got Kentucky fans all riled up. Maybe DJ Wagner will transfer to Louisville midseason. And um, this problem will be solved. I'm just joking. Kentucky fans, don't get mad at me. That's obviously <laughs> no, a joke. No, that, that was the, that Jay Williams, like there's a lot of things that you can say in the middle <laughs> of a broadcast that people will let slide. That's probably the one thing that you can't oh, say. Oh no, that, that was like a thing for like three days afterwards. I'm like, oh, what are you, what are you doing, man? <laughs> yeah, what, you don't want yeah. Kentucky fans on you like that. It's um, like he, com- he comes right back into college basketball and he's just dropping nuclear bombs everywhere he goes. Takes, uh, takes yeah, for 40 minutes of takes on the, on the broadcast is pretty funny. I called but, the Stephen A. Smith of college basketball. I think that's what his angle is. So, uh, so something is cooking there. We don't know what it is, though. <laughs> I, re- I respect the hustle. Far be it from me. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think back to the original convo, like it, it is awkward. And Indiana has a little bit or did. I think he played better the other day against Harvard. But, you know, if Mackenzie Mbaco continues to play horribly, you know, and you're Mike Woodson, like you're going to bench the, the five star kid who came to your school because he wasn't going to play at Duke. Like, how long is that going to? going to go well for you so these are the difficult conversations that coaches have to manage and calipari is probably better at it than most but you know there's a reason why he hasn't benched dj wagner yet and maybe he will maybe he won't but the fact that it hasn't happened already 
is is kind of you know indicates what the situation is. And we live in tampering time. So as soon as he does bench DJ Wagner, if that were to happen, then Louisville and every other team in the country is reaching out to the Wagner family. His grandpa literally is at Louisville. So there's going to be some sort of conversation there. But on the flip side, let's talk about Miami quickly. Miami is a team that we saw last year. They get blown out by Maryland and a lot of people write them off and, and say, okay, Miami, not for real. Let's move on from them. They're a lead eight run. That was cute. And then they go back to the final. They go to the final four for the first time in program history history and kind of get all the, the that conversation thrown out the window. I thought the fascinating part about the Miami response after the game, Ken Pomeroy, a.k.a. Kim Pom, he is the analytics expert, as we know, in college basketball. He puts out this tweet calling them a media darling and says, you know, basically it seemed like it was coming from a place of shade, to say the least. And I just want to talk about Miami because we've seen this formula before. And if you watch Larinaga during this Kentucky game, it felt very much like a sink or swim approach. I, it did not seem like he was very affected. He seemed like he was willing to let his team kind of go by the wayside and learn a major lesson. Like, are we worried about Miami or is this a, a larger grand scale plan from, you know, Jim Larinaga and this Miami staff? Because that's how I felt watching it. Not to say that a blowout is a good thing, but I didn't feel like I need to hit the panic button quite yet. No, yeah. I mean, look, even if they'd played better, your odds of going into Rupp Arena in a non-conference and, and coming away with a win, even against a young Kentucky team, are, are pretty slim. You know, St. Joe's almost did it, but, you know, St. Joe's almost just beat Villanova, so maybe St. Joe's is just good. Um, I think, yeah, Jim Laranega is the kind of guy who, and the kind of coach who um, always has an eye on the sort of longer-term psychological effects on his team. And I think maybe he thinks, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world here if we get if we get run, because then I have like two or three weeks worth of um, things that we can work on, things that we can lock in on, ways I can get this this team's attention, because it is a bunch of guys. It's basically the same team that went to the final four last year, you know, minus Isaiah Wong, really good player, um, super underrated player his entire career, basically, um, and fit perfectly with the team because he was such a shot maker. But, you know, this is this is a team that is going to be really, really good offensively again. It's going to make a ton of shots. Like Wuga Poplar is already very much living up to expectations as a as an Isaiah Wong replacement level shot maker. Nigel Pack hasn't even played well yet, really. Omier looks like one of the big best big guys in the country. Um, so I think Miami will be there at the end of the season. I think they they have a chance to be pretty similar to what they were last season, which if you go back and look, their numbers never looked particularly good. But then you see them on the floor this is where I disagree with Ken a little bit, like um, as someone who ha has always been very into analytics and, and Ken's work kind of quantifying the sport. I, I disagree with him a little bit because I think Miami didn't really try to play defense last year. And so their numbers throughout the year were always probably worse than they could have been if they'd ever like cared to play defense, but they could always just get the next bucket. So they'd win, you know, they'd go beat Wake Forest like 90 to 86. And you're like, okay, guys, you could have maybe played a little bit better defense, but they just never cared. Um, and so they get in the tournament and yeah, they can, they can score a bucket or two more or 10 more than, than everybody they play. So it doesn't really show up in the numbers. I don't think their final four appearance was, was quite as much of a fluke as it you know it looks like statistically. So I think they have a chance to repeat that this year. I do think they need to get better defensively. Um, but I, I'm not ready to throw Miami away just yet. No. 
Yeah, Kentucky had something on tape that they saw with Matthew Cleveland. They were attacking him um, pretty much the entire game. So I don't know what it is that they saw on tape, but they obviously saw something. So Larinaga will will shore that up. And then, you know, Bensley Joseph, I think, will have a better game and, and develop as the season goes on. I really like uh, number seven, Kaishan uh, George, who's on their team. I think he has a lot of talent. He's an interesting prospect for this team. And then, you know, Norchad O'Meara, I think, is going to be the national player year, player of the year conversation. Obviously, it doesn't help in this game, but he only played 19 minutes and had 20 points. So, I mean, he's a guy that obviously can get things done. I'm a little worried about the size of Miami, but I'm not pressing the panic button. I'm okay with that. Let's talk about Arkansas and Duke because that was the other big game. Uh, 1994 national title game rematch. You know, we got a lot of conversation about that game. We also saw these two teams play in the 2022 Elite Eight out in San Francisco. Um, This was a much needed win for Arkansas. This was Eric Musselman's 100th win. We saw them storm the court. Um, It was a Trayvon Brazil said, I am back. I am who I was last year at this time. A lot of people were worried about him, but they don't have, you know, Tremont Mark playing in this game and they still come and have a guy off the bench that has 21 points. That just speaks to the depth of scorers on this Arkansas team. Are you buying more into the must bus after this game or do you buy into just the hype of Bud Walton arena against this Duke team? Well, yeah, obviously the arena helps massively. And I think you see that with, you know, who, who scored the majority of Duke's points, right? Like Filipowski, who's just an awesome player. Anytime he takes the 26 floor, and I, 10. Yep. Yeah. 20, 26 and 10. Really, really good. Jeremy Roche had 22 looked pretty steady. Um, the rest of those guys, you know, particularly like Jared McCain, I think he made one shot. Um, Proctor wasn't good. Mitchell wasn't particularly good. They didn't get points from anywhere else really. Um, and so, you know, young guys get shook in a building like that. I don't think you can overstate how, difficult it is to go to a place like that particularly if you are in a non-conference environment and you don't go play there all the time like if you've been in the sec uh for a couple seasons yeah it's still intimidating and yeah it's still a tough place to go but it ramps up for a team like duke for starters and it ramps up in a non-conference situation so it's a it's a really tough place to play and i think everybody saw that last night i mean i just think muscleman we you know i don't really have a new read on him or how his teams play because they change pretty frequently in what they emphasize um, it, you know, they, they adjust to their personnel really well. And he always has a combination of guys that can get a specific number of jobs done for him. And I think he's, he's just really, really good at plugging and playing with new rosters each year. And this year's, this year's no different. Obviously I think Brazil is the star of the team. He looks even more sort of fluid and composed than he did last season when, you know, early last season, he was like, Oh, Oh my God. God, look at this guy. Like, what it was a like mani- pure athleticism, right? What it's just a like, maniac athlete. Yeah. yeah like, just mm-hmm. a total high flying 6'10 guy who, um, you know, was the best athlete in the country. Even if he's not quite there after his injury, like, guys making, you know, four of seven from three at his size with his athleticism is nuts. And um, that development into a more complete player, I think he's the star of, of a team that, like, will scrap and, and fight and claw and, get things done just enough in certain ways to to get by and and this team i think if it follows most of muscle's teams at arkansas pretty good right now um may take a few lumps early in the season and and come february you know late february early march will be like oh arkansas is really dangerous you don't want to play them in the tournament and they'll make a tournament run to like the sweet 16 of the elite eight again 
And a lot of times, you know, as you've watched Arkansas at the start of the year, I mean, it just felt like the ball was sticking in one guy's hands. You know what I mean? It felt like there was no sharing of the basketball. It felt like everybody was trying to get theirs. But in this game, I mean, L. Ellis has six assists. Battle has five assists, right? They were sharing the basketball. They looked connected. Um, Musselman looked like he was involved and engaged in the game, which in the Bahamas, he almost looked like desolate, like he didn't even want to talk to anybody. He was so upset. Um, I joked about in the last show, some of the pictures after Atlantis, right? They had the weighted vest on and, you know, they're in practice and they got the coaches like just pushing them out of the lane. And uh, Jalen Williams, you know, former forward for Arkansas was like, this is giving me PTSD looking at these pictures, right? So I think they had some hard practices and I think they answered the bell. And, you know, if you're Duke, you missed so many layups in this game. I think because of that frantic energy of playing in that atmosphere, I think it overwhelmed them a little bit. But you have to be encouraged by TJ Power. He comes off the bench. He's supposed to be a guy that, you know, is not going to play but so much, but he hits two big threes in this game. He's a freshman. I thought that was encouraging for Duke. That's something that they can look at and say, hey, at least this guy can answer the bell in a big environment. So, Duke has some positive stuff. I don't think Proctor's going to be hitting the side of the backboard too many times, you know, from, from three, like we saw in this game. Um, also, on the flip side of that, Mark Mitchell, I mean, after the game, Eric Musselman said, we decided as a team we're going to give him shots. Um, so the fact that, you know, you have that situation, that's also something that Shire has to figure out, right? If teams are going to completely just sag off of him and let him take open corner threes and he's not able to knock him down, they're gonna have to figure that out at some point. So I think Duke is a really talented team. I don't really knock them too much for this loss. In fact, I thought they could, they competed pretty hard and they made it a game there at the end, um, which is why I love college basketball. No lead is safe. Everything seems possible at some point. And uh, Duke was able to extend that game, but uh, in general it was good for the must bus. Good for the Arkansas fans. They were fired up. That was nice to see. Let's talk about Tennessee, North Carolina. Rick Barnes comes into the Dean Dome. He's wearing all black. He's got the whole staff wearing all black. He's telling stories about growing up in Hickory, North Carolina and watching, you know, Dean Smith's teams back in the day. I mean, the full Rick Barnes experience going into this game, he was very excited to be back in Chapel Hill. And that was until the ball was tipped and North Carolina played one of the best offensive halves I've seen in quite some time from this team. Probably the best offensive half I've seen since the Baylor game in the final four when Brady Manick was unconscious. Um, but just in general, watching this game, watching North Carolina put up 61 points on Kim Palm's number one defense. Did you believe a little bit? Because it does feel like they figured out something where Elliot Cadeau is the point guard. RJ Davis is off the ball. We can put him on the ball when Cadeau is out of the game. But the first play of the game, they tipped the ball back and, and RJ Davis drops it back to Cadeau, basically saying, pass the torch. You are a point guard now. Do you feel better about North Carolina? Because it feels like the roles are being figured out in real time. Well, yeah. And I think that is a a configuration of guards that you see more and more now, right? Is like essentially mm -hmm. two point guards, one of which might be like a combo guard, lead scorer type, which is kind of what RJ Davis is, right? I mean, he's 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 a point guard, but he's never been like a 35% assist rate kind of guy, right? Like he's always been the guy with the ball in his hands, playing off screens, can pass a little bit, um, but isn't like, you know, an assist first point guard in the way like, you know, Kellen Marshall was or something. Um, and so you have, I think, I think it makes sense to a have another guy like that on the floor and B move RJ Davis off the ball because he is a shot maker. Like he, he's right. a good, he's a good shooter. He can come off side screens and, and screens out top, um, make plays getting at the rim, mid range stuff. Like when the ball's in his hands, good things tend to happen. Um, but letting him play off the ball a little bit, I think gives you two guys who are really quick, difficult to guard out top. 
and could get really up and down the floor in a way that North Carolina teams at their best have to. And when you just have one of those guys doing it, and it's a bunch of wings and a big guy, um, you're going to look less dynamic. Even a guy like Caleb Love is, wasn't the kind of ball handler. Like he just, you know, he's a scorer. So two ball handlers on the floor in the backcourt, um, particularly for a team that wants to fly up and down the floor like North Carolina. I think you saw that, yeah, against Tennessee, particularly in the first half. Obviously, Tennessee kind of no-showed, as Rick Barnes was talking about, but I think you have to give Carolina a ton of credit because they looked extremely fluid. Like they played like a classic North Carolina team. And if I was a North Carolina fan and, um, you know, obviously I'm speaking to one, I would have been like kind of over the moon, not just that they played well, but that they looked like North Carolina again. Yeah. Carolina first team to score 60 points and a half against Tennessee since February 15th in 2006. So that was something uh, that Carolina fans could get excited about. Obviously the primary break, the secondary break, these are two staples of North Carolina basketball that a lot of fans, you know, last year were getting upset about saying, this does not look like something I'm familiar with. So the fact that you saw Cadeau being able to start the break, especially the primary break a couple of times, the Baycott where he gets easy dunks. Um, that is a, a sight for sore eyes to say the least. Now, you know, for Tennessee, you have to look at Dalton Connect because um, I, I just looked at the ESPN mock draft that they have right now. They have this guy number 40 on the board right now. I will promise you this. He will not be going in the second round. This guy's going to be a first round pick, potentially a lottery pick. Um, 37 points, most points in the Dean Dome. Uh, would have had, he would have set the record if he didn't get hurt and turn his ankle in this game. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of the ceiling of Tennessee? One, if obviously Connect, hopefully his ankle is okay and he gets back to 100%. But with Connect being able to score points and get them baskets when they need, and if the defense can get to where they, you know, usually have it, typically, again, number one defense in the country. What is the ceiling of Tennessee? Because I know they lost three straight games. A lot of people want to write them off right now, but I do think that they're a team come March. You do not want to see in your bracket because Rick Barnes can coach his ass off and they have a true superstar in Dalton connect. Yeah. I think, um, first of all, the second half would have been encouraging because I think the first half if you're a Tennessee fan. You're like, wait a second. We, you know, we only lost to Purdue and we lost to Kansas and that was disappointing, but is this team kind of just like checked out here? Like what's going mm -hmm. on, right? Because you never, ever stand, again, Rick Barnes said this, um, you know, he basically said that's the worst his team has ever played for 20 minutes, um, particularly a team with this much talent. And you are kind of worried, like, are they playing for him? Like, are they, is mm -hmm. this like a deeper situation? Like what's going on here? Second half, more encouraging. And yeah, I, I, putting that sort of first half behind them was important. I also just like, I still kind of feel the same way about them that I did because I think you can put that sec that that the defensive performance for a team that's been really really good defensively for like three years kind of to the, to one side and say the platform that they have defensively, assuming it holds up long term, and I think it will, is always really good. But in the past couple of years, their offense has been really not a whole lot of fun to watch. And mm -hmm. you know, I like a guy like Santiago Vescovi. I think he's a nice player. Um, Obviously, he's a good shooter. He hunts shots, but he's also kind of an annoying player to watch. And so, like, he, right. he has annoyed me in the past because it's all hunting shots. Kind of, he's like the guy at the at the pickup run who just kind of runs to the ball all the time um, and is ready to shoot at a moment's notice. And you're just it, their offense has been disjointed in the past. I think um, what Connect gives them is, yeah, like you said, like a, a true offensive superstar that run your normal stuff, uh, be really good defensively. And then when you need to get an actual shot, you don't have to run eight screens for Santiago Vescovi to get a, to get a 22 footer. 
Um, you could just put the hands, put the ball in the hands of, of Dalton Connect, and I agree with you. He's not going to be a second round pick. He's a phenomenal player. He's one of the best offensive players in the country, and hopefully his injury situation will be all right. Because I think again, the platform Tennessee has had the last few years with their defense has been top tier, good enough to compete. You know, at the top of the SEC and, and along those lines, they just need scoring. They need more offensive talent, and he gives them. He gives them that. Yeah, Vescovy was basically completely out of this game. I mean, he came in late in the second half. Uh, you know, Rick Barnes put him back in the game to try to get something going to see if he could spark some sort of magic. Originally, when I saw this game on the calendar, I thought Vescovy would come into the Dean Dome, have like a Grievous Vasquez type moment where he's quieting the Dean Dome crowd, right? That that felt like the sort of game that Vescovy would have. But in reality, I mean, Adu, you know, Josiah Jordan-James, Dalton Connect, I mean, th those were the guys for Tennessee that really checked the boxes for this team. And Zakai. Kai Ziegler and Vescovy, guys that were more known and guys that we probably talked about, like I said, going into the season, they weren't a part of the conversation in this game. You know, things change fast in college basketball, but I do think that they have a, a nice team there with Tennessee, and I do think that they have a head coach that once he beat Duke last year, got some of the March demons um, a little bit out of the way. Um, so we're not having that conversation as much about Rick Barnes. So I think there's... Um, and I liked what Ganey did for them. Jordan Ganey, he hit some big shots. I mean, I, I think that Tennessee has a stable of guys that can really make a run. And, uh, you know, Rick Barnes will be in the Hall of Fame. He is a Hall of Fame coach. Uh, he has a Hall of Fame resume. So um, I, it's not something to really concern yourself with. I mean, the two... Uh, players on North Carolina, I think that you're the most excited about right now. If you are a fan or alumni or whatever you may be for North Carolina is obviously Harrison Ingram. I think Harrison Ingram is another guy. I looked at that draft board. He's nowhere to be found. I don't understand that at all. I mean, he had a nice pick. Like he picked on connects pocket, goes down, throws down a left-handed dunk early in this game. The first possession of the game, RJ Davis rejects a Baycott screen. Baycott rolls. He hits Baycott right at the free throw and Baycott, instead of sitting there and not knowing what to do immediately, you know, rotates the ball over to Ingram, who hits a three, right? And as soon as that happened, you say to yourself, this looks like a team that's connected, unlike last year. Last year, it felt like my turn, your turn, sort of basketball. That was not the case for North Carolina. And if you look at the advanced analytics of Cadeau when he is on the court in the last three games uh, against Villanova, Arkansas, and Tennessee, with Cadeau on the court, 1.37 points per possession in 73 minutes. Without Cadeau on the court, 1.02 points per possession in 52 minutes. So um, North Carolina is a different team offensively when you have Cadeau on the court. And when Carolina has a point guard, there's something to be reckoned with. So there's some, you know, some good, you know, conversations to be had with the Blue Bloods right now. Not so much on the Duke side, but on the Carolina side. Let's talk about Virginia. Tony Bennett, um, you are my kind of, when I think about Virginia basketball right now, I feel like I need to talk to you about what's going on there. Um, you, you are locked in. You know what's happening. You got your hand on the pulse of this team. They look great defensively against Texas A&M. And as you pointed out, it's a little bit different than the typical pack line conversation we've had with this team. When you got guys like Ryan Dunn and you got guys like Reese Beekman, um, how impressive has Virginia been, especially on the defensive end? Yeah, really impressive. I think they're kind of fascinating because um, you sort of look at the long arc of, of Virginia's program since the national title, right? And so they were just a that team, they were just, you know, the best team in the country, complete team, both sides of the ball, DeAndre Hunter, lottery pick, like whatever. Um, the following season, they lost all their offensive talent. They were still the best defensive team in the country by like a lot. Um, Amadou Diakite, Braxton Key, great defenders. Um, that team couldn't score. Uh, the year after that, they, you know, Tony Bennett imported all this offensive talent. Um, and Sam Hauser, he had Jay Huff playing kind of a five out 
uh, stretch center. And so they kind of switched their identity from being this extremely hard-nosed defensive team that couldn't score to being this very free-flowing offensive team that was playing this kind of weird, no-screens offensive system to space the floor. Uh, really fun to watch, but but not traditional Virginia at all. Um, and then since then, they've kind of been a little muddled, right? They haven't been the elite defensive team. You know, the, 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 the year after that, they were just kind of average. And then last season, they were okay defensively, couldn't make a shot. Um, got through games, won a lot of games anyway, uh, but kind of faded down the stretch. Obviously, had the upset loss on the first round of the NCAA tournament. The the upshot of all that is they've they've kind of lost their identity a little bit. Which, if you look back at the 2010s, was always, always, always a defense ranked in the top 10 of adjusted efficiency, usually in the top five. Um, and they haven't been that for three, four seasons now. And so this is the first time since then that they've gotten back to that level of defense. And so that's kind of a return. And Tony Bennett has been talking about it a lot, particularly um, Wednesday night after the win over AM, talking a lot about identity and what the identity of the team is. And coming into the season, I would have thought the identity might be a little more offensive, right? They import Andrew Rohde from, from St. Thomas. He's like this versatile offensive player that everyone talks about his feel. He's a great passer at 6'6". Um, you know, that Ryan Dunn's sort of development was supposed to be on the offensive end. Uh, but you look at them now, and they're playing elite defense. And as you mentioned, yeah, in a way that that they don't. Ryan Dunn and and Beekman are among the most disruptive defenders uh, in terms of generating blocks and steals. Particularly Ryan Dunn, which is is nuts. He's he's like maybe the best um, blocks plus steals generator in the entire country. And so Bennett is letting them be disruptive and sort of sacrificing the, the defensive glass, which traditionally in the pack line system you never do. You stay in your spots. You get defensive rebounds. This defense, this defense is, is much more disruptive, a little bit more fun to watch. Um, and I think, you know, is is thriving because of the tweaks he's been willing to make all along these last few years. Um, now he's applying those tweaks to his personnel, to the defense, and it makes a lot of sense. They just have to figure out, you know, the offensive end and make a few more shots. But but defensively, they've kind of gotten their program back in a way that I don't think anyone really saw coming prior to the season. Yeah, all five starters in this game scored in double figures, uh, and the Cavs now have wins over West Virginia, Florida, and Texas A&M. So you talk about resume. I know we're going to have quad conversations um, as we get into January. I'm I'm already anticipating these <laughs> you conversations. Sound yeah, you're, you're yeah, I'm, sound I'm disgusted as I even say the word quad, <laughs> but uh, you know how it is. Uh, but the Cavaliers, I mean, things are going well for them. Happy for Tony Bennett. Um, it's fun to see you know these guys go up against Texas A&M. I think that was the the other part of this ACC SEC challenge. Just seeing like a Texas A&M going to play Virginia or seeing Duke in Bud Walton Arena or, or seeing Tennessee in Chapel Hill, it did have sort of a, oh, this is interesting. Uh, you know, I, I'm kind of enjoying this. I, I did not expect to have so much fun watching these games. Another one of those games, which I think was a little bit off the beaten path, was Georgia-Florida State. Um, you know, Florida State was up by 17 points in this game. Uh, looked like it was a foregone conclusion. This would have been the game that could have clinched for the ACC, uh, you know, in this challenge. But here comes Florida. And the more that, you know, you, you watch this Florida team, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the more that you watch this Georgia team, I don't know why I was thinking uh, Florida right there, but Florida, Georgia, shout out to that, right? But the more that we watch this Georgia team, uh, you know, as this season kind of, you know, wanes on a little bit, I like the way that they're built. I think that they're a very tough team and they almost look like they could be a tournament team. Uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but how fun was it to watch this game? And did you expect Florida State, Georgia to actually have your attention, um, you know, going into the night because there were so many better games? Yeah, no, uh, Florida State, Georgia is definitely not one on my radar. Um, <laughs> right. But, 
But yeah, no, I I don't disagree with you. I think Georgia's off to a, a you know they're four and three, but they seem better than four and three, right? Like right. Um, you know they they're all their losses came in single digits, except for the loss against Miami, I think. But but it's you know, um, like but Miami's good. We, Miami's we can't good. Let the, yeah, yeah and they've, right. <laughs> they've been in every game they've played, and and you look relative to where they were last year when they were just like first year of Mike White coming off a you know a a bad previous tenure. Um, you know, a couple really, really bad seasons and you're kind of building from scratch there. And, you know, I think Mike White's kind of moving in the right direction. It's obviously early for tournament talk, but like they've got, you know, I'm looking at their schedule right now. They've got six games in a row where they can, you know, they should based on where they're at, you know, they're up to like 78th in Kempom right now. They've got six games in a row against by teams. Um, excuse me, five games against five teams, one game against Georgia Tech. Sorry, Georgia Tech. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Georgia uh, Tech, by the way, got a nice win in this challenge as well. So Georgia Tech got a little bit of optimism. So there yes, you go. True. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, but they have, uh, let's say, six winnable, very winnable games in a row because uh, the Georgia Tech game's at home. So win those six games, uh, you get to January, you're, you're you know, 10 and three, um, probably in the 70s in Ken Palm and, and looking like a team that, yeah, well, depending on how the SEC season goes, you'll at least be in the conversation for a while. So yeah, start getting your, yeah, start getting your quad arguments together. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, and then good things will happen. Uh, Wake Forest is another team. I want to shout out Hunter Salas transfer from Gonzaga. This felt like a coming out party in this game against Florida. Florida is a really good basketball team as well. Um, obviously had already lost to Virginia. So this is their second loss to an ACC team there with Wake Forest kind of showing the world, Hey, we have good guard play and we have uh, the makeup of a team that can get back to March. So um, Wake Forest need, needed and deserved their own shout out as well. So appreciate that. Um, just one last thing on this challenge. Uh, you know, they were joking about a Dan Shulman after the Arkansas as they're storming the corp. He's, he's like, I think they're going to do this again next year. Are we excited about this challenge? Like, did, did this pass the, the sniff test of like, this is good for college basketball? We need the ACC SEC challenge because I know that was such a big conversation with the ACC Big Ten challenge. And last year when it ended, you know, we got the moratorium and everyone's like, this is bad for college basketball but i think this challenge might be good for college basketball and uh you know i wanted to have that conversation because it feels fair yeah for sure i mean i i will admit my my biases like i grew up in iowa i went to indiana so i'm uh you know i lived in chicago for six years uh so so you got the midwest big 10 take and yeah for sure like i i feel (laughs) like i grew up watching the acc big 10 challenge and really really liked it um and it kind of became a fixture on the calendar in the way that like the Maui Invitational is. Um, and so I feel like I'm a little sad to lose that for sure. And there, I don't know why it necessarily feels different to me other than like my demographic background. You know what I'm saying? Like the, because of where I grew up, if that's just the reason why maybe the ACC SEC challenge just doesn't hit the same way for me. But um, I think I that's why I'm asking you too, because like, because I am from the South and I grew up in the South, I feel like it was hit because, you know, when you think about like Georgia, South Carolina, t- Tennessee, Kentucky, like they're so close in proximity that it feels like more neighbor neighboring rivalries, I guess you should say, you should say. So that's why I'm like, I need an outside perspective to make sure I'm not drinking my own Kool-Aid too much. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. It's like last night, uh, or Tuesday night, I think um, John Rothstein tweeted like his classic, you know, January, February, April, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, inserting Izzo for March. Um, and I was like, oh, who'd Michigan State play tonight? And then I looked 
at thinking is like, oh, it's a Big Ten ACC challenge. Like, no, they, right. play, they played Georgia Southern. Um, also, it's November, so I don't know why that tweet applies anyway. But um, <laughs> it was still like... Sometimes know, I think he has just tweets saved in his draft and he has them scheduled and then they just go out. You know what I, I mean? Think, I think a large part of the process might be automated, but who's, who's, it's, not my, it's not my place to say. AI is um, everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but no, I was like, it was, it was off. It felt off to me that this week of basketball, like the Tuesday of this week, Michigan State was playing Georgia Southern and Purdue was playing, you know, Texas State or whoever they were playing. It just felt weird. And that's, you know, that's just the the classic Big Ten country, um, you know, background, I guess. But I, I think bottom line, the ACC, SEC challenge, like, even if there isn't like 20 years of sort of cross-cultural competition there, um, the bottom line is if there are good teams in those leagues, if those leagues are strong every year, then it doesn't matter, right? Like, the, the as, as long as it produces five, six you know, decent to, to high level marquee games, then that's all I care about, you know, particularly because they're on, they're on campus. Um, and that's something that I'll, I'll prattle on about for hours. If people let me, it's just like the more of these games that are on campus, the better it is for college basketball. I love, you know, feast week. I love tournaments, but you know, you, you rewind back to Sunday and I was watching Texas A&M kind of in advance of them playing at Virginia against Iowa state Sunday at the wide world of sports in, in, in Orlando, there's no one there. And like, that's a pretty good game. Like Texas A&M, Iowa state is like two top 20 teams and the gym couldn't have been more dead. And it's just like, if you put this in Hilton, this is like a game that you need to watch on a Sunday night, you know, kind of in between your, your NFL football or whatever. So the more of these games we can get on campus, the more of these kinds of events, crossover competition events facilitate that I'm happy, even if it's not the thing I grew up with. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think you make a great point about neutral site games. Neutral site games are terrible, but I will say it is good to see that the TV ratings are up and that a lot of people are watching these games. I mean, Feast Week had a lot of eyeballs. There was a lot of good matchups in Maui. Um, this is the most watched Maui Invitational since 2018. So that was a good note for everybody out there that, you know, we joke about it all the time as people that, you know, cover and talk about college basketball. It does feel like there's the Grim Reaper kind of like, you know, lurking in the background and everyone's waiting for the Atlantic article that says college basketball is dead. But um, luckily for us, uh, the TV ratings are showing that's not the case. So that's good news. Grab your game day gear because college basketball is back and FanDuel wants you to join in on all the fun. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets when your first $5 Moneyline bet wins. I've been saying it all season long. I love the futures. I love the Final Four futures. I have said Miami. Probably not the best feeling right now after you saw Miami play in Lexington, but that's another conversation for another day. But again, go to FanDuel.com. you got great futures there. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to join than now. The app is easy to use, and when you win, you'll get paid instantly. That's right. So visit FanDuel.com slash OSP. That's FanDuel.com slash OSP and make this college hoop season one you won't forget. Must be 21 or older and present in select states. $5 pregame money line wager required. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issues as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, 
brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier, thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Um, The ACC-SEC challenge that happened, uh, you know, the the matchups are great, but there was one team that was not involved in the ACC-SEC challenge. But thank God for us. Kenny Payne said, I will get these headlines. I will get the attention, even though we're playing Bellarmine. Um, They win that game, but there is a conversation, and he's had a lot of crazy post games this year, and he had one good post game, but the rest of them have been insane. But he told a story about Tyler Johnson, um, who barely played in the first half, and then the reasoning behind that was because he did not have the tights that he wanted and Kenny Payne made sure to point out that they never had these tights that he wanted to play in. Um, did you ever think that we would be having this conversation about Louisville basketball? And I even saw Luke Hancock, a former MOP in 2013, when he, you know, had, you know, was told about this conversation, just flabbergasted. Like what, what is happening with Kenny Payne and what even is this? Like, I, I don't even know how to make sense of this even. I, I, I'm starting to suspect that Kenny Payne is doing performance art. That is my, I know, right. That is my, <laughs> my suspicion. No, I mean, I think it was funny because I was sitting there listening to it through the, through the, um, lens of a parent of young children. And like when I'm in the process of like negotiating with my four-year-old to get out the door in the morning to go to school and he, you know, I picked out the wrong shirt for him and he'll just be like, apoplectic that I, you know, he wanted to wear his, you know, nature right. discovery t-shirt or whatever. And it just it's, shuts not, down. it's not clean, dude. Like you can't wear it. We don't have this shirt. We got to get out the door. Um, and so I'm sitting there being like, yeah, man, I've been there. I know what you're talking about. And then I had to snap out of it and be like, wait, no, Kenny, this is like a college basketball player. First of all, why are you talking about tights? If you don't have them for, for him to wear, <laughs> why is that even in his thought process? And then maybe they're like a medical tights, or something, but still, if you don't have, I, but also, why are you telling people this? Just be like, yeah, he, he wasn't sure. You know, like he, he felt his groin. Uh, we, we weren't sure we wanted to do it, but it, you know, at halftime, we, we felt like, um, he felt like he could go and we're glad he was on it. Like the guy just can't help himself at press conferences. Um, which is not the main problem. The main problem is the team is not good <laughs> and doesn't seem to be right. getting all that much better. 
But then you you have a game where you almost lose to Bellerman and you come out of it and this is the thing. And then you're just like, dude, you're, you're not helping yourself. Like you're, you're just making your program look even more like a joke when you could kind of try to be rallying people behind a, a team that's trying to get better or something. It's just crazy. And especially not to be in the challenge itself, which is already like there's a certain kind of disrespect there that, you know, Louisville, a top 10, you know, program and wins in college basketball history is not a part of the ACC SEC challenge, especially when you think about the fact that they probably, you know, if it was any 10 years ago, it's Louisville, Kentucky is playing in in the SEC ACC challenge. And it's like a rivalry, like piggyback whole situation. And it's probably featured as the best game in the challenge. Right. But instead they're playing Bellarmine at home. And the quote is just ridiculous. I mean, here's the quote, quote, we didn't have the tights he wanted. So he didn't know if he wanted to play. And then he stops for a second to give it a breath and everyone, cause everyone's like doing the wait, what, what did he just say? And he said, Oh yeah, you heard it. (laughs) Like, like there's certainly someone in the background that goes, what? And he goes, Oh, Oh yeah, you heard it. Um, he said, we didn't have the tights he wanted that we never had for him. And he decided, I don't feel like I can go. That's young people today. So not only does he say this and kind of out his player who then in the second half, even as we saw, comes in the game, has five assists in 16 minutes and basically helps them win the game. So it's like you made a bad basketball decision there. Um, but you also attack the youth, which is the same youth that you're going to be recruiting to come play at your school. And you don't think that these other teams are going to use him saying like, this is kids today. Like this is the the old Simpsons meme, like old man yells at clouds. Like this is like, it, it can't be real, but it is. I mean, that that's really the big takeaway. Like this, this just cannot be real. Again, this is, this is like the parent. I was sitting there being like, yeah, man, that, you know, four-year-olds are like that. You know, like when I'm talking to my <laughs> wife and he's like, do you see what Jack did? Yeah. And you kind of are like, Ugh, is, is, is he a bad kid? And you're just like, no, you know, four-year-olds just that they have, they have their moments. And, and, uh, and it's just like, we're actually talking about like what, like a nineteen-year-old. <laughs> you know, like this is right. not. We're not talking about a toddler here, and we're not talking about a. You know, these are the normal developmental processes of a of a of a young child. It's like, dude, you know, this is a this is a college basketball player. This is high level stuff. Like Louisville, it, you know, has at various times been essentially its city's pr- professional basketball program, <laughs> and um, it's just not. It's not good enough, to be honest. Yeah, it's just I th- not I think good the, enough anymore. Yeah, it's not good enough. And I think the leash is very short. And uh, if I'm Kenny Payne, like I, I'm trying to make sure that I make it into the new year. I, I, you know, that would be my my main objective is that I'm still the head coach come January 1st, 2024. But that why, would be though? my main but here's goal. the thing. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know if they're going to let him go or not. Like, I don't have any any intel on that. But like, if you're Louisville right now, okay, you're four and you, granted, Last night they matched last year's win total. So and they beat a team that they lost to last year. So that <laughs> I mean there, there is some encouraging stuff there. And right? they, you, you know they were it. good in New York. They were good in New mm-hmm. York, right? They almost should have beat, beat Texas, Texas, which right. we'd be looking at them very differently. And these quotes, I I think the thing with Kenny is that like because they played well in New York and the team is better this year, I feel like his quotes this year are a little bit like he's kind of letting himself hang it out there a little bit. And you're like, dude, the team, you guys are still really bad. You know, your, your, <laughs> right. your frame of reference is all wrong. Like, you you haven't turned this thing around. Um, yeah, please please don't take the victory lap just yet. Calm right? down. Like, the- <laughs> like, you don't need to be doing patino-level bits in your in your press conference. Like, just right. take a deep breath. But, yeah, it's yeah. I, I don't know that I, he will get there, I think. Um, but you're kind of just like, you know, that that Kentucky game on December, 3rd, on December 21st is just at the Yum Center. It could be, man, 
I don't know. That's the that's the game that I'm. Th- that's what I mentioned. The new year. I think that game, if it goes really, really sour, and you know, you, you see, as Louisville fans who have, you know, they fell in love with DJ Wagner. Let's say DJ Wagner has some incredible performance, blows them out of the water in the Yum Center. I just think that you know, there's a lot of people there, the powers that be, that are not going to be happy about that. But uh, shout out to Kenny Payne, another guy that did a victory lap a little too quickly. Cal Neptune, he wins the Bahamas, uh, the Battle for Atlantis. It seemed like everyone was popping champagne, saying Villanova. Basketball is back and uh, not so fast. They play St. Joe's. They are 0-2 now against the Big Five. They lose to Penn at the Palestra, even though Seth Davis said UConn lost to Penn. Um, and it turns out it was Villanova that lost to Penn at the Palestra. It was not at home. There was a whole lot of back and forth about that. The Big East fans you know, are up in arms about this, the Villanova fans especially. But they lose to St. Joe's. Um, they were chanting. The student section was chanting at one point SAT scores to St. Joe's as they were up 16 points against them. Um, I know the Villanova people in my life who I reached out to, they were not happy uh, about this because Philadelphia, in Philadelphia, the big five still matters. I know nationally we don't talk about it as much as we used to, but in Philadelphia, it does still matter. Um, how do we parse through Villanova? Because we've seen the good, we've seen the bad, and now we've seen the ugly. Um, do, do do we Are we worried or do we think that they're going to be okay? Because they're great outside of the U.S. right now, but in the U.S., playing in Philadelphia in particular, they do not look like the same basketball team. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's, um, they looked casual for sure. Uh, they looked like, okay, we got complacent, this fi- right? Yes. I mean, that's probably the best word. They looked like, okay, we got this figured out. Yeah. Yeah. We lost the pen, but, but you know, look what we did in the Bahamas. That was a blip. We looked, yep. you know, we, we've got it figured out and it's a veteran team. And so maybe some complacency does sneak in. I think, um, part of that maybe is coaching. I wrote a couple weeks ago after the, after the pen loss, like these are some of the things you go through when you lose a sort of legendary coach and um, you know, whatever Kyle Neptune ends up being as a coach, you know, the odds that he are, that he's as good as Jay Wright are pretty slim. And so you, you go through some of these pains when you're used to in like in Villanova's case, just absolutely dominating the big five for the last 20 years to the point where, you know, people don't, I probably outside Philadelphia don't realize this. I certainly didn't realize it until, you know, probably digging in a little more in the latter part of Jay Wright's tenure when they were getting really good. But like schools in, in Philadelphia and, and their fans and like, you know, Philadelphia city people do not have an inherent level of respect for Villanova. They don't like Villanova. Villanova is, they don't don't think it's a Philadelphia team. No, it's a suburban (laughs) rich kid school. (laughs) That's in a leafy suburb. That's not even part of like the Philadelphia city um, milieu. And so, um, you know, it's funny. I was covering the tournament in Philadelphia. Um, actually when North Carolina was, was there, uh, you know, that sweet 16 elite eight stage and, um, listening to sports radio, like on the media bus. And there was some caller calling in talking about how much respect he had for Jay right now, even though he was a St. Joe's fan, he grew up, uh, grew up in the city, live in the city. You know, I would never like Villanova, but you can't help but respect what they've done. Like they dominated to a level with a sort of style and a class to them that like even Philadelphians had to respect. And so yeah. you, you and had to accept it. Exactly. Yeah. You accept it. And then eventually you're just like, look, man, you got to hold your hands up. Like they're, you know, they're just they're awesome. Good. And now mm-hmm. you lose some of that and you lose some of that sort of um, sheen and yeah, Villanova fans, you know, st- how, how are students supposed to react? I mean, not by chanting about their SAT scores, but um, you know, things are not going to be like, super easy for Villanova moving forward. There are going to be these pains because 
Um, Jay Wright's not there anymore. And whoever you get to replace him um, is almost certainly, even, even if Kyle Neptune does end up being as good as him, he's in his second year as a head coach. And you're just going to have these moments where like, maybe the team wasn't as well prepared mentally or emotionally as it could have been for what a game to St. Joseph's is going to be like the most important game of their season. Yeah, and Eric Reynolds for St. Joe's was incredible in this game, so I wanted to shout him out. I mean, they just came with a certain sort of tenacity and fight that you expect in what they view as a rivalry game, so you can't be above the Big Five when you're Villanova, especially now. You can't go into it thinking, oh yeah, we're just going to go out here, roll the balls out, we're going to win this game, because everybody's going at your neck because they see, you know, that there's a chance to go at you and that it's actually going to work out, so shout out to St. Joe's. Big win for them. One more conversation I wanted to have with you, Eamon. Um, We are in November, so it is not time time for everyone to be freaking out, but it is also the time I mentioned the quads and the resumes and all that sort of stuff. It does start now because uh, eventually when we get to February leading into March, people start looking back at these games in November and December. And one of the teams that you highlighted that is maybe pressing is the right word. They're trying to get to, to some quality wins to make sure they're in that conversation. Conversation is St. Mary's. They were picked to win the WCC over Gonzaga this year. That was um, something that a lot of people highlighted. They have not been playing their best basketball. They've had some tough losses. They play Boise State tomorrow night. Um, when you're a team like St. Mary's and you're not going to get these quality w- wins in conference, how much of a sense of urgency do you have to have right now in November and December? And how much of that is like, we got to lock in fellas because if we don't we're not going to see march yeah totally i mean i think it was evident you know i I stayed up late here on the east coast to to watch that game uh against utah in in moraga on tuesday night and um you know it was a timeout in the first half i I wrote about it on on my newsletter it was a timeout in the first half 30 to 23 utah hit a couple open threes in transition all of a sudden saint mary's is down seven on its home floor the crowd goes quiet they call timeout and it's like panic in the timeout Right. It's like yeah. it might as well have been a tournament game and they're down in the first half to some number 12 seed. And it's like, this is a disaster. We have to figure this out right now. It wasn't a normal November. All right, guys, like, you know, um, no, nothing urgent here. Like, we'll sort it out. It was, you know, everybody quiet, no high fives. Everybody sit down and listen right now sort of stuff. And it's because St. Mary's knows like they're, you know, they'd already lost three non-conference games. Utah's is going to be a team that I think will be in the NCAA tournament picture based on the way they're playing. Um, if, and so they needed that win and they didn't get it. Um, you know, and so now they're three and four and, you know, with the possible exception of, you know, they, they go and beat Boise state in Idaho, not at boy, not in Boise, but in Idaho falls on Friday. Um, and then maybe beat Colorado state at Colorado state on December 9th, um, maybe you redeem some of this stuff, but, um, you know, losing to, to Weaver state at home, even a good Weaver state team getting blown out by San Diego state and Xavier, Xavier, a game that, you know, I think in theory for St. Mary's could have, could have been winnable. Um, they're already in a situation where, you know, barring like two wins over Gonzaga and a really good conference record, um, they're going to be on the outside of the tournament looking in. And so, um, I think this is true for like every team, like, I think there there's long been this kind of thing with, you know, college football versus college basketball and how you understand the two seasons and like college football, every game matters so much. You can't lose once your season's over um, versus college basketball where it's like, oh, I don't really need to pay attention until February. And then you can tell me who the good teams are. And it's like, no, like this stuff does all matter. You know, if you take, you know, 
a couple of bad losses in non-conference play, even if you end up being good in a, in a high major conference, you're going to end up being like a six seed as opposed to like a three seed or a two seed. And that stuff matters. Um, but for teams like St. Mary's, it really, really, really matters. Their season begins right away. They don't have the luxury of the classic, like, oh, you want to peak and play your best basketball in, in Mar- you know, late February and early March. It's like, no, you have to peak in November. And, um, that, that they're a great example of a team that for whom that is especially true, but, but it also an example of, of, why in college basketball i think people sometimes sleep on these november games like they're entertained by them but they don't understand the larger context it's like no all that stuff that happened feast week all of those ins and outs are going to be extremely important very soon like when purdue is talking about a number one seed versus kansas versus you know all that stuff is going to matter and um like the importance of it starts right now yeah, and if Gonzaga won the Maui Invitational, I think they'd be in a better spot, as dumb as that is. If Gonzaga goes and wins the Maui Invitational, now they beat Gonzaga once. That's enough of a signature win. You know, they finish second in the WCC. They they make it to the conference championship, right? Everyone's like, okay, yeah, St. Mary's, they're a tournament team. They're probably a seven seed, whatever it is. But now that Gonzaga finishes fifth in the Maui Invitational, they're not even in that conversation. And now people are not going to look at them as some, you know, all-time top 10 type team going into the tournament. It's not going to be that kind of win that gets you over the hump and you don't want to be in the situation where you have the pressure of Aiden Mahaney go win us the WCC tournament so we can get into the actual tournament right that is the pressure that Randy Bennett and that team does not want to deal with so um, I think St. Mary's is a a very you know good case study when it comes to the sense of urgency that we have right now in November I'm going to quickly shout out a few things that happened in college basketball just around the country want to shout out the Detroit Mercy book guy I don't know if you saw this Detroit Mercy 0-7 on the season has not won a game but there was a guy at the game in their last game he's just reading a book and they they cry on him as book guy I like bad guys I like good guys but book guy is a new one um, we've seen it at Cal Berkeley before um, I'm sure the Villanova students that were chaining SAT scores they might bring a book to a game hit you know once or twice in their life but uh shout out to the book guy at Detroit Mercy that was fun to see I hope they get a win very soon uh shout out to coach Patino not that Patino Lobo basketball Patino 200th victory um, out there with the Lobos that was good to see um know the Patino family was very happy about that. Um, and then uh, shout out to George W. Bush. Uh, George W. Bush was at the Dayton SMU game when he found out the Henry Kissinger news. So um, in a weird uh, <laughs> kind of college basketball history combination, I never thought that uh, Dayton SMU would be a, a game where, you know, such vital news to, to our country would be told to a former president. But uh, shout out to George Bush for being an SMU diehard basketball fan. So much of a diehard that he got SMU into the ACC. So there you go. Those were some uh, ridiculous college basketball storylines. And I swear every single time I think that I'm out, you know what I mean? Where it's like, it can't get any crazier. We've reached the, you know, the, the point of no return. We've already reached the most insane status of college basketball. It just gets a little bit crazier. So that is uh, something that we are used to here and something that we appreciate. Um, Eamon, where can we find all your amazing work? Because you're doing great work. We're in season. I'm enjoying everything you're putting out. So uh, let's just uh, plug it again for the people so they can stay up to date yeah it's it's emanbrennan.com is the website uh it's called buzzer by eman brennan it's my Substack newsletter it's been a lot of fun getting into the season a lot of people uh showing up and and supporting so um check it out there and then i'm on twitter or x or whatever it's called uh (laughs) we don't even know we don't even know i don't even I'm on that website that's slowly <laughs> dying at Eamon Brennan. So holler yeah, and Elon out. Musk is attacking people about not advertising on said website. So who knows how much longer we have Ma- another website. masterful gambit. 
Who would have thought? Well, there you go. I uh, appreciate everybody tuning into One Shining Podcast. We got a lot of good college basketball. Hope everybody's enjoying the basketball. We got even better and bigger games this weekend. Uh, the hits just keep on coming. Uh, we will see you on Monday with Kyle Mann. Let's talk then. Thanks for listening. Must be 21 or older and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. one 800 with it in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE in why or text hope and why in New York. This episode is brought to you by hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease. And the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.